1: party tonight! TV party tonight! TV party tonight! Party tonight. Party tonight! We're gonna have our TV party tonight. All right! We're gonna have TV party All right! Tonight! We've got nothing better to do than watch. Everybody's going to hang out here tonight! All, All right. right! We'll pass out on the couch. All right! Tonight! we got nothing better to do than
2: watch TV. All right, people. We've had a, a bit of a delay, but I think we've got it now. Let's see if the Blog Talk Radio lady can hear me. Madam, can you hear me? Tommy, can you hear me? That's me. All right. Let's do a second test here. Let's see if I can hear my guest and he can hear me. Yes. Can you hear me?
3: Yes, I can. Can you hear me?
2: Oh, hot damn. We have a show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm not sure what happened there, but um, we, uh, we as happens with Block talk radio from time to time, there are technical difficulties, uh, the, the difficulty being I couldn't hear anything and no one could hear me. I mean, and you could have a show without a host. I just don't know how well it would go, but we're here. It's TV party tonight. We will be discussing chef's table and I am your host, the mandated reporter. And frankly, I'm mortified Mr. Mark Rattledge. and my guest tonight who can hear me and I can hear him is, uh, Mark Ross. How you doing, Mark? Oh, not too bad. And you? <laughs> a little little sweaty, a little frantic, a little annoyed. But other than that, I'm doing just dandy.
3: Well, just like uh, just like in the
2: kitchen. It's never how bad you fuck up, it's always how you bounce back. Indeed. Speaking of bouncing back, let's let let's let's do that. Now I uh at the beginning of this year I had been watching the documentary Cooked, the four part documentary on Netflix. Uh, put out by Michael Pollan, whose books I I very much enjoy. And I happened to mention, just sort of offhandedly on Facebook, I was like, hey, this is something I think I'd like to talk about. And uh, you and some others immediately answered the call uh, wanting to talk about it. And I said, okay, well, I've got somebody in mind for this, but uh, if you're really interested in talking about another food documentary series on Netflix, I've got one in mind later in the year. Um, and, and that brings us to tonight. I had seen Chef's Table in The queue on Netflix. I really didn't know anything about it, but I'm, I'm a huge fan of food television competition shows. I like to watch them with my wife and my daughter. Uh, I'm into it uh, just in general. I watch a lot of food documentaries. So when I saw it, I said, okay, well, I think I want to talk about this one, too, and I'm going to pick somebody else who was, who was into it. What made you decide to answer the call, Mr. Roth? Why did you want to jump into the podcast world and talk Chef's Table?
3: Well, I was a professional chef for 14 years, so I like to look at it from time to time and exercise my brain, so to speak. (laughs)
2: Um, Tell us a little bit about your experience as a chef. Where did you work? What kind of cuisine, uh did you uh happen to be cooking? And uh what happened? How come you're now you're no longer a chef? Uh well the the last question is the easiest one, just burnout really. Uh
0: working <laughs> as
3: a chef in the kitchen for as long as I have the hours just kind of get to you. No such thing as a sick day, no real vacation days. It, you're up, you're in the game. Sure. Uh, I In my career, I've run the gambit from uh, when I was 15, working at a pizzeria, uh, all the way up to my last job, working in uh, a fine dining Italian establishment. Uh, Outstanding.
2: Almost everywhere in between. Now, uh, did you stay in the New York area um, or did you migrate around the country? Did you travel across the world? Where did you work? Uh, Mostly
3: in the South, actually. Uh, I had my first uh, culinary class in South Carolina, ended up going to Johnson & Wales back when it was still in Charleston, and
2: mainly stayed around the Charlotte metro area. Okay. Now, had you heard of Chef's Table when uh, when I asked you to talk about this with me? Did you know what it was? It showed up in my queue, just like with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Very good. Um, I have never, other than Dan Barber, uh, who I feel like I saw him on like a Top Chef or uh, something else. um, And and I might be imagining that. But I feel like I've heard of Dan Barber before, but I have no idea who the rest of these people are. Uh, This is a six-episode season. And we're only doing season one tonight. And it's uh, Massimo Batura, Dan Baba, Francis Malman. Oh, boy, do I have a lot to say about him. Uh, Nikki <laughs> Nakayama, Ben Shuri, and Magnus Nilsson, who look like he should be playing no, guitar and in the lames. Yeah, that, that's an awesome name. Um, I, ever, I, was, I was watching the episode, actually, before we, we went live tonight. Uh, and I just kept yelling out randomly. Magnus Nilsson from Gothenburg, Sweden, uh, is actually <laughs> in the band. In Flames are from Gothenburg, but it's neither here nor there. Um, so yeah, I I had no really real foreknowledge of what this was. I just sort of you know saw it there, popped it on, and I'll tell you, had it not started with Massimo Batura, I don't know if I would have gotten through all of it. That's not to say it's a bad series, but like if it had started with Francis Malmen, I don't know if I would have kept watching. What a douchebag! Uh, but Massimo <laughs> had, had <laughs> Massimo had this uh, uh, charisma about him and this sort of boyish enthusiasm. I was really into his story, and it hooked me to watch the rest of the series. Just in general, what did you – we're going to break these down episode by episode, chef by chef, but uh, just a sort of a general approach to this thing, what did you think of Chef's Table? It was
3: very much a documentary. It was meant to highlight uh, the best that each individual had to offer, uh, very generic in terms of uh, their – their formative years, how they learned to cook. I think uh, I think actually Massimo was probably the most detailed. Um, as the dishes at the end just it 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 felt like a chef's money shot on my screen.
2: <laughs> you know, I was debating how much I wanted to use the term food porn. Uh, <laughs> tonight. And I, and I have to say, that's always the best part of any cooking show. You know, if I'm watching, like, uh, Guy Fieri's Diners Drive, uh, Diners Dives and whatever the hell it's called, um, Diners Drive and Dives, it's always that close-up shot of the food or, or, or Top Chef. You know, where you've watched them, you know, make the sausage and everything, and then finally they do that one shot of the food right before the judges taste it. And that's always the best part of it for me. You know, I, I yeah. very much <laughs> love the visual aspect of the food on screen, more so than any other part of, of, of any type of any of these type of cooking shows. And it was no different with Chef's Table. I, um, I didn't get to watch the entire episode of the Magnus Nilsson one, just because time ran away from me this week. But I fast forwarded to the very end. Because that's the, part, that's the part I most look forward to. At the end of the episode, they just run through every dish that they've featured in the episode. And they all have such fun names, especially like Massimo Batura. You know, like, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. You know, shit like that. <laughs> yeah. that, that story <laughs> uh, had to
3: be my favorite out of the entire series.
2: Yeah, I, I love that. I Look, I, I don't know art and I, and I don't know cooking, but I know what I like. And I'm, and, and as somebody who does, you know, dabble in creative efforts such, such as the world of podcasting, I really enjoy their creative approach to food and, you know, and some of the more eccentric characters in chef's table made the show more enjoyable for me. Uh, you know, again, I go back to Massimo who we'll we'll just get into talking about him. Um, when he it just that whole that story where it's like the, the one cook uh, chef dropped it and he was like, oh, my. And he was just, just beating himself up over. Oh, my God, I dropped the lemon tart. And and it was kind of like, no, stop. It's beautiful. Let's recreate that on the plate. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's genius and madness. There's a fine line. Um, now, let me ask you, had had you heard of any of these people before you watched this show?
3: I've actually heard of Dan Barber before. Uh everyone else though not really. Okay. If I if I had ever heard of Magnus before, I know I would have
2: <laughs> <laughs> I would have known that. Sure. Let's get into the first episode here, Mr. Massimo Battura, whose story is essentially he has a restaurant in Italy. Um and, and correct me if I'm if I'm a little sketch on detail here. But uh, I think the the thing about his first restaurant is he's making a traditional Italian cuisine, but he's doing it in a different style—a style that's sort of upending the tradition. And he leaves that restaurant. He goes to New York. He meets the woman that en- that ends up becoming his wife. He goes back to Italy. There's a detour into France. Back to Italy again, where he opens up a Steria Francesca. Uh, Francescana and again we have this situation where he's doing his own take on traditional Italian cooking and at first it's you know it's not what people want it it pushes people out of their comfort zone then I think he gets like a rave review and suddenly he's the talk of the town and now he's got the third greatest restaurant in the history of earth or some shit so um I uh I I loved this episode. I loved this chef. Uh you know, I grew up in an Italian family. Uh I often talk about my nana and her Italian cooking and you know, you don't get much she, she, she was not exactly a chef, but she she had her dishes and those dishes always had a lot of sentimental uh attachment, a lot of memory for me. So the this was a fun episode for me to watch. What are some of the things that stood out to you in this episode? Uh,
3: One of the big things was the, the very opening that uh, that little story about uh, the 10,000 pounds of Parmesan that uh, that were damaged in a, in a storm. And he had to, he created a new risotto dish that, centered around parmesan and ended up saving the business
2: that's a great story that that is an excellent story and again another situation where you have to sort of think on your feet and come up with something sort of ingenious uh i actually forgot about that so you mentioned it um and then the dish he creates you know with that sort of lattice uh Parmesan there on top of the uh, on top of the, uh, the Parmesan. The Parmesan
3: three ways.
2: Yeah, it looked delicious. It absolutely uh, looked looked like a delectable dish. Um, I have to say, and and maybe this is you know this is just me, but where I struggled with every single one of these episodes is, and and I do this a lot with with uh, cooking shows. I don't care about the people as much. I'm interested in their story to a degree, but there comes a point where I'm just like, I'm only watching this because you make awesome food. (laughs) I'm not so much interested in you. Uh, And I felt like uh, Massimo, because of his charisma and his his energy, was fine. But as we get into some of these other chefs, I was like, can we go back to... I felt like there was too much emphasis on their history and their personality and not enough emphasis on the food. And it's, and, and these episodes are sort of hit or miss for me. Uh, what did you think about that? Or, or were you, or were you very much engaged by everyone's story?
3: Well, that's what uh, I was talking about earlier when I said, this was very much a documentary documentary. Uh, normally, you know, we watch food shows, Chopped, Top Chef, uh, Kitchen Nightmares, and Hell's Kitchen, uh, and you know, we look for the food, we look for the drama. We're looking for we're looking to be in the moment, whereas this is really a uh, thirty to forty minute uh, presentation of some guy that a bunch of food critics fawn over and they want us to know how special he is and being from the industry it's it's nice to see some of the top chefs people that are considered the top chefs in the world going through some of the same issues i went with when i was cooking
2: i have to say and you hit on a very good point there the struggle was real for a lot of these folks they didn't just you know fall out of a tree and instantly create a, you know, a Michelin star restaurant. Uh, And I think in a couple of these cases, they talked about going broke. They talked about, you know, (laughs) I, uh...
0: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's
1: my little escape.
0: Now Judy's the life of the party.
1: Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon.
0: Whoa. Take it easy, Judy.
2: Plus. if you're playing the Rattledge and broadcasting network home game every time we draw we draw a reference to wrestling take a drink it very much reminds <laughs> me of it very much reminds me of the story of wrestlemania where it had the original wrestlemania not worked the wwf was going out of business um that there's just that was it this was either it was all or nothing and you get a sense of that with a couple of these chefs where they threw their life's blood and everything they had into creating these restaurants. And if they, if they didn't work, that was it, they were done. Um, and in some cases that's exactly what happened. You know, they would create a restaurant, it would go belly up and they would have to go do something else for a while and then come back and try again. Uh, it, it speaks to the, the, the spirit of, uh, of entrepreneurship and taking chances and whatnot. And I found that to be inspirational
3: Oh, definitely. Uh, with with Massimo, definitely so. The the first restaurant, it didn't exactly go under. It was the one where uh, he ended up becoming a bit of a social pariah in his own town because he took Mama's recipes and did them differently. And from what I understand, that's a huge no-no to Italians.
2: Right. We, we are nothing uh, if not is. a stubborn people.
3: Oh yeah, my wife's Italian. I know. Been married, been married for, uh, four years. She still will not let me cook Italian for her.
2: It's the only thing I am
3: forbidden from making.
2: <laughs> I have a my best friend is very much like that. There's only one way to make sauce. If you make it another way, you're wrong. Um, before <laughs> we move on, <laughs> before we move on to the next one, I just want to give you the final word here. Anything about this episode? uh you want to uh you want to talk about anything left unsaid?
3: I found it interesting that out of all the chefs, he was the only one that uh not only was he married but his wife was his business partner uh the The story about how they met how they got together, and then him calling her up at like three in the morning in New York to propose to her right before his restaurant <laughs> opened.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, that to me was it, again. It, it, I always, as somebody who works in the field of of mental health, you know, psychology, I always find it interesting that you know you have these creative geniuses who have just no clue how to interact with other people. Yeah, it's just you know that that he has this sort of frenetic, manic, you know, way of thinking that it would make sense to him that as he has this thought, yeah, sure, call up at 3 o'clock in the morning and propose to her. It makes total sense. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I definitely
3: identified with the story of them being at the movies. They leave the movies. She goes, how'd you like it? And he goes, I don't know. I didn't pay attention. I was trying to figure out how to do this.
2: Right. <laughs> that was great. All right. Episode 2, we have Dan Baba and the Blue Hill Restaurant at Stone Barns in New York City, baby. New York City. Um, now, I, like I said, I feel like I've heard of Dan Barber before. And where I remember Dan Barber from, I could not tell you. But I think you I have involved watched... with Blue Apron. Okay. And maybe that's it. But um, I have watched a lot of uh, documentaries about the food industry and, you know, how we went from farm to table to processed and preserved and how we're, we're trying to go back now to that because um, of the health crisis, quote unquote, in this country where we've overstuffed ourselves on processed foods and we have rampant diabetes and obesity. And as somebody who has, struggled with weight since high school. This, this, you know, this is something I really did a deep dive into a few years ago, reading books, watching documentaries, the whole nine yards. So um, other than Massimo, I really enjoyed this episode because there's this focus on Dan Barber as the chef, really focusing on ingredients and making sure he had, the freshest, most seasonal ingredients and pushing that idea of, you know, farm to table, which is not easy, obviously, especially in this go-go world, you know, where you've got uh, jobs and kids and some of these things can just be unforgiving. We all don't just don't have sometimes the opportunity to grow a garden in our backyard and make fresh food. And so you, you sometimes you have to make compromises but I'm at least intrigued and inspired by those that do push themselves and, and put, and put that message forward. So I, well, well, Dan's food in and of itself, maybe not what, I mean, you know, as far as my personal tastes go might not have been as appealing as say Massimo's or Magnus's or Ben Shuri's, which we'll talk about as we go forward. But as far as pushing an ideal and maintaining a sense of integrity within the world of cooking, uh, I was, I was excited by what I was seeing. I en- I very much enjoyed this episode. Uh, what did you think of Mr. Baba?
3: I found it very interesting. It was very refreshing to, to not only see uh, a chef struggle in the kitchen itself, but also, uh, to be that involved with the production and cultivation of his own ingredients. Uh, he, he, his story is one of, uh, having this farm. He's like, okay, I'll grow the vegetables. I'll use the produce in my kitchen. And then he's like, well, I can't just have this because eventually all the nutrients will run out. So I need to get some livestock to create the fertilizer. Oh, I got this livestock now. Okay. I'll use the protein. And it's, it's one thing after another, uh, are you familiar with South Park at all?
2: I am. I love that show.
3: Uh do you remember the episode where uh, Cartman gets a uh a theme park? <laughs> yes. That, Nobody can come in. Basically that episode is the is the uh, story of of <laughs> of of Ben minus the no one can come in part.
2: Really? Okay.
3: Well, because as he found out, okay, I've got all this to myself. Oh, wait, I need this. Okay, to do this, I need to do this. To do this, I need to do this. And it's an ever-evolving chain of events that culminates in an uh, an end result that everyone enjoys.
2: This standout moment, believe it or not, for me in this entire episode, um, you know, with my memory being what it is, it's not great. (laughs) So if something if i can actually remember something in detail i know it it was truly meaningful to me and the one part of this that truly stood out to me you know for the longest time i've been heavy on protein and i've i've uh abandoned in a lot of ways uh grain in my diet um you know i read books like wheat belly and Uh, you know, this Gary Taubes is, this is why we get fat and all that. And there's, you know, there's, there's definitely a almost religious philosophy of you want to stick with your grain. You want to stick with your proteins and your leafy vegetables and stay away from your grains. Of course, there's also equally fervent, uh, religious philosophy out there of you want to stay away from your proteins. And stick with your greens and your leafy greens, but that's a whole other category. It's a whole other podcast. In any case, um, I, so I'm not well, number one. I've never been a big fan of bread. Uh, you know, just just got in the way of the meat. That's the problem. See, right. <laughs> you're stand you're standing between me and my burger. You you bread you. Uh, but he he bakes this fresh bread, and he and he addresses the fact that. Yes, the bread that you buy in the grocery store for the most part is shit. But if you – you know, there are, there are grains, there are natural uh, ingredients that you can make fresh bread with, and it's perfectly healthy, and it's delicious. And he actually bakes uh, two people this bread, and he's like, showing them something on the iPad. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, for a guy who's not a fan of bread, that looks delicious. Oh yeah, it's
3: it's amazing how uh, someone can craft food in a way that you would not have thought uh, palatable. Yeah, it. I mean, I looked at that bread and I'm like, I want to smell it, I want to touch it, I want to taste it.
2: They're very similar. Making. I've had a very sim. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
3: Oh no. uh, the ability to make your own bread is just a, it's a, uh, my father actually, uh, was a bagel baker, uh, as I was growing up. And I learned that from him and it's, it's not the same as the bread that, uh, that Ben makes, but the, the experience of taking all these different bits and putting it together into something, you, you get a sense of pride for it. And it, just tastes that
2: much better and a very similar experience when i watched michael Pollins cooked because yeah, that gets broken up into the elements of cooking so you have fire you have air and the air episode is the baking episode and i remember thinking to myself like i'm not into this at all <laughs> i uh i don't care you know the fire episode was awesome i don't care for this bread episode and i had a friend of mine who watched it before i got it and he goes don't be so sure you're not going to like it because I guarantee you, you'll have the same reaction that I did, which is it's going to look so good to you that you're actually going to want to eat the bread. And he was not wrong. So it, you know, you eat, you definitely eat with your eyes. Um, Anything else on Dan Barber left unsaid that you want to address? Uh, If he really is involved
3: with Blue Apron, I think that's probably – the most inspired move a professional chef could ever go into because you're, you're so confident in your craft and so passionate about farm-to-table that you're goading those who would come to your restaurant and pay obscene amounts of money for your food to do it at home and learn to do it themselves.
2: You know, my wife and I have actually... Um been toying around with the idea of doing one of these deals where you know they send you a box of ingredients and you make uh and you make food like that and we were looking at that we actually were looking at blue apron so i'm I'm actually i'm googling it now to see if he's involved with that If that's true blue apron green acres is the place to be uh let's see here San barbara blue apron Uh, The Google machines are running a little slow tonight. Um, All right. While this this warms up, let's go ahead. Now, let's talk about this for just one second here. Francis Malman. Now, it could have been the fact that I was having – it could have been the fact that I was tired. I was not feeling well. It was dark out, and there were wolves after me, but I did not – like this fellow and i think of all the episodes i just i i didn't i don't know i i struggled with his with with this guy and i think i think part of it was that there comes a point where he's like talking about not you know he has a kid with this woman and yeah he's like yeah well we don't live together and then he starts talking about like he can't stay in one place and like this is where the pendulum swings too far one, in one direction. Well, you're so artsy, you're so creative that you can't handle normal human relationships <laughs> to, the, to, to the detriment of those involved with you. And it's like, I get that you're a craftsman. And, and I, one of the shows I really enjoy is uh, Manfire Food. Um, again, I'm a big fan of, big fan of grilling. And I love, and then this guy's enthusiasm. I don't know if you've ever seen the show before, but you know mm-hmm. he uh, he goes he goes to all these different places, and you know they build these elaborate fires and do all this awesome grilling. And there was a little bit of that in this episode as well, and I dug it. But it was like okay, when he was when he wasn't grilling fresh meat on a on you know on a on a stick somewhere out in the you know in the far reaches of, of the of the world, it would go back to, yeah, I can't deal with people. I don't have time for this sort of thing. It was like, alright, <laughs> douchey. <laughs> Take it easy. That poor child you brought into this world. So I don't know. Am I being a little too hard on the beaver? What do you, what do you think?
3: Uh that's that was one of the sticking points about this guy too. And I really wanted to like him because of the way the episode opened up. With the uh, the wood burning grill because that's was one of my uh, favorite memories from when I cooked professionally. I worked for a restaurant where we had one of those wood burning grills, and just to 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 roll up to the restaurant, it the smell of the of the of the burning wood would just permeate everywhere, and it it mixed with the smell of the cooking meat, and it, it just got you going mm-hmm. and uh, we would actually fight each other sometimes to be the ones to <laughs> to start the first fire of the day
2: <laughs> there's something primal about starting a fire we uh, oh yeah we used to we used to have one of those like fire pits in the backyard and i remember the first couple of times i did it i was like wow this is this this is fun I never thought of myself as somebody who would have fun starting a fire in a fire pit, but, you know, I, I guess it's a sign that some, some, to some degree, a sign of maturity, a sign of, you know, getting older, you know, it can't all be rock concerts and uh, whatnot. You know, there was a pride in owning my own home and having a fire pit in the backyard and starting a fire and, you know, being able to use it to do stuff. Um, and so I'm with you there there's an enthusiasm, a very primal enthusiasm for that sort of thing. And and then this guy would fucking talk again. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you know, like a... And then he'd talk and then, and then he would talk about how he lived his life and um, I'm instantly taken out.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It was definitely like, you know, like one of those dates where he's just like, you're so pretty, please stop talking. Um, <laughs> I don't remember a, Single fucking thing he cooked in this episode, and again, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna blame uh, David Gelb or or Francis Mommen for that. That might be my own fault. I was, I was not in a good way the night that I watched this. But I yeah, mean, for, if for you most can, of rec- the food was an afterthought. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it really was. They
3: they really wanted to 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 highlight these kooky guys who have elevated the art of culinary to a new level. They wanted the, you know, to have the food critics that have given them their, their great reviews to talk about them, talk about the person, the food is somewhat secondary. It's like at the end, they show you all the dishes that he, that he's famous for as if to go,
2: Oh yeah. And he makes food. <laughs> In case you forgot what you were watching. He has a bunch of shitty cook. Um, none of which stood out to me. Did any of his food stand out to you? Uh, cause, Cause like I said, I, I might not have just been paying close enough attention. I might've gotten to a point where I said, I, I need to go to bed. I'm done with this. So I don't, I don't no, want not, none just, of his dishes. Okay. Okay. So it's not just me then. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. France, I don't know if I ever, if I ever end up in Argentina, uh, you know, I, I think I would have to go to his restaurant just because I'm sure it's delicious. I'm sure it's wonderful. But this episode didn't really do a lot for, you know, like, you know, going back to Massimo, I want to go to Modena, Italy, and, and go to Osteria Francesc- Francescana. This next one, we're going to talk about Niki Akiyama, uh, you know, in, in Kana in Los Angeles. Yeah, hell yeah, I want to go eat there. Um, you know, Magnus Nilsson uh, in in Jarpin, Sweden, hell yeah, I want to eat at his restaurant. You know, this guy I didn't have that hell yeah feeling when when this was all yeah. said and done. Um, yeah, with him it was more episode, of a hell yeah I want to do that. Yeah. Uh episode 4, Nikki Nakayama uh in N Kana restaurant in Los Angeles. And uh I liked her story. You know, we finally get a we finally get since from the first episode another story where I could absolutely see, you know, pick up what she was putting down. You know, I could see where she was coming from. Um, a little stereotypical in the, you know, in the sense that, oh, the poor Asian girl, you know, you, you can do what the men do. You know, I have expected there to be a scene where her father's making a walk behind her or some sh- behind him or some shit. Uh, But, but uh, I have to say, you know, the human spirit and the desire to, you know, defy the odds and push past the stereotypes and everything. Um, I was very much inspired by her and she made some damn fine looking food. Like I don't go out of my way to eat sea urchin, but. Oh yeah. The way it was together, presented was amazing. Yeah. Very artistic. I, I really dug it. Um, what did you think of this episode? I like the story.
3: It's just, it felt a little token, if, uh, <laughs> if that makes sense. It, she ticked sure. a lot of boxes to make people happy. Woman, check. Minority, check. Comes out <laughs> ahead in the end, check. <laughs> uh, you know, oppressive backstory, check. There's, you expected her to so be
2: this, a bunch of women protesting Donald Trump carrying her on her shoulders, you know, over the streets of Los Angeles. That's what we need to see at the very end yeah, of it.
3: Basically, I mean, even her attitude towards uh, people knowing that she's the one cooking their food.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, it. I understand her reasoning for doing it because she wants the food to speak for itself. But... I think we're at a, a point in society where uh, anyone can do great things in the kitchen. It's the end product that is the
2: reflection of us. With all of the celebrity female chefs out there, is there still a prejudice in the kitchen against women? Cause I, I just, Oh my God. Yes. It, really? <laughs> Talk to me about that for a moment. Let's let let us put a hard break on this and talk to me about why with, with like again with with not just the Martha Stewart's, but I mean, you have the one lady who does the uh, the with uh, well, the Worst Cooks in America show that's been on for like 10 years now. You have Rachel Ray. You have the 97 different women who have come out of Top Chef and have gone on to do you know, really great things, and yet there's still a prejudice. Talk to me about that. It has to do with
3: <laughs> how we are in a kitchen. When I first started learning how to cook, uh, I actually learned from a female chef, and she did anything and everything to try and scare the crap out of me. Uh, one of the first... Things that she would talk about was how the the line of a restaurant is akin to uh, being in the belly of a submarine. It's small, it's cramped. Everyone's heavily armed and pissed off. <laughs> okay. And there is uh, that that huge stigma that a woman can't hang with the men you know we're we're tough as nails rough and tumble we will you know we'll uh, shit talk each other we'll you know pull pranks and they you know women can't handle it and I've experienced that in the kitchen both ways I've I've experienced it where there's women that absolutely can can go toe to toe with even the most
1: <laughs>
3: pissed off guy and then there's the very fragile woman who just can't.
1: Hmm.
3: And it, unfortunately, it's the ones that can't that are the most well known. Interesting in, uh, in school. Uh, in school, when the the story of the woman that can't, uh, there was a uh, a professor who owned several restaurants. Uh, around Charleston he was known for being a hard ass if you screwed up he let you know He she screwed up he let her know she went crying to the dean and the professor was let go
2: oh Jesus yeah well that, that's a problem and that's unfortunate in general. You, you can't actually teach anybody anything anymore unless someone get their feelings hurt
3: Right.
2: But unfortunately, it's stories like that that
3: that are more out there than, you know, the women that can handle uh, an entire line by themselves, you know, get in the weeds and come out on top.
2: I can't believe it's, it's 2017 and and we are still dealing with that sort of thing. That's, that's fascinating to me. I will say this, I have a, my brother-in-law is a professional chef and uh, he's worked in one of the, uh, one of the best fine dining establishments in uh, Tampa. Uh, and he was telling me, he was like, yeah, the the kitchen is just, I don't know if he used the word toxic, but I will. It's just sort of this toxic environment of everyone, everyone sort of existing as a raw nerve, (laughs) you know? and if you He's not wrong. And if you yeah if you have thin skin you're not going to last the environment is not conducive to people who are mamby pambies whether you're a man or a woman and and i found that fascinating that you know that that's a consistent thing in kitchens across across the country or you know across the world um anything else about the Nakayama episode uh, not really. I mean, it, it
3: just like with, uh, Massimo's very inspired story. Uh, it, it, it gives you hope that with the right, uh, emotional and financial backing that you two can, uh, put forth, how to put it, it's cliche to say put forth your soul, but it's, it's basically what we do it, when when you're cooking at a restaurant, that's your soul on a plate. All right. And and back to the raw nerve thing, we're we're constantly seeking the approval of the customer.
2: Sure. All right. Admittedly, this next episode, the Ben Shuri episode, I was in and out of. Uh, it just it was just one of those days where. I was on the couch and my my attention was uh, being pulled in a couple of different directions. So, the parts that I remember, the parts that stood out to me, were him talking about cooking, with you know, really trying to make something of natural Australian ingredients. And I know at one point he was cooking kangaroo, and and yeah. I tell you. <laughs> as somebody who's a big fan of game meat and you know, if I ever was able to open up a restaurant, it would absolutely be a game meat restaurant. I was like, yes, cook more kangaroo. Outstanding. What was your uh, take on Mr. Ben Shuri in this episode? What did you like? What didn't you like? Uh, You know, again, with my attention being not really where it should have been with this episode, what, 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 what's some of the good stuff I missed here? This one was the one that uh, that talks about
3: the overarching fear of going broke and going under. Uh, mm-hmm. Part of his story was buying a restaurant that was already failing, and then racking up, I think he said, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars worth of debt to his vendors because he, like all like like all great chefs, would not sacrifice his vision for something that's stable in a restaurant where no one was coming. What
2: was he trying? What was he doing that? that. What was he doing that wasn't working initially? Um, In other words, what, what was the problem that was causing him to lose money initially?
3: From what I remember, he just said nobody was coming to the restaurant uh, they would Okay. They would get up early in the morning, they'd prep the line, they'd open the doors for
2: dinner and crickets.
3: <laughs>
2: <coughs> That's heartbreaking. So what turned it around yeah. for him? Uh <laughs>
3: On Tuesdays, a, a notoriously slow day for restaurants, he turned that into one of his best days by being completely experimental. I think that's where he said he started cooking with the kangaroo because there was no, there's no cookbook for kangaroo. There's no, you can't Google how to cook kangaroo. So he got inventive, and Tuesdays was his day to to cut loose. And I, I think the one food critic. uh that they spotlighted for his episode was like, yeah, when you go in on Tuesdays, your life is in the hands of God.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And I guess that the word got out that Tuesdays is fun days and and the popularity blossomed out of that.
3: Yeah, and I I, I can only gather that what worked made it onto the menu,
2: what didn't work <laughs> went back to the drawing board. It's sure. not dropped completely. This is, this is the worst Asian kangaroo I've ever had. Um, <laughs> Tasmanian devil, are you crazy? Um, okay. I, I, I don't have a lot of input on this one other than ID kangaroo. Sure, absolutely. Um, I, 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 Australia is on the list of places I want to go. His restaurant is definitely one I would check out, and that's really my only input into this episode. Um. So with that being said, that takes us to our final episode, uh, Mr. Awesome Name, Magnus Nilsson yeah. from in Sweden. And uh, <laughs> this was one where my wife was on the couch, and at the end of it, I just read her everything that you know that they were spotlighting at the end. I was like, "This looks awesome," and has some of the worst names I've ever like. You know, Grouse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, there was, there was a couple of, uh, Tasty Paste. That was another one. I not like something, something you'd sell a kid. But, uh, I liked his story. You know, he, uh, he just sort of this uncompromising. They said at the beginning of the episode, and I thought this was hilarious. They're like, nobody comes here. So there's really nobody. Around, there's, there's no influence. There's no, there's no one around to tell you well, you're doing it wrong or you should do it a different way. And he's just making these traditional dishes the way he wants to do them. And the other thing I thought was really fascinating about this, sort of taking it back to the conversation about Dan Barber, is you know he's using local ingredients in an unforgiving, frigid wasteland where nothing grows half the year. And so he you – know, and we talk about the word preservative. You know, and and it's just got an it's got such this this evil connotation to it. But it comes out of necessity. It comes out of the fact that there are parts of this world where you had to store food for the winter. And so the idea of preserving food isn't inherently bad, it's all in how you do it. So do you use this, you know, chemical that, you know, maybe in large quantities harmful to you? Or do you do it in this more traditional way, you know, where they're salting meat and they're jarring food and storing it in a root cellar? Uh, I was really <laughs> fascinated by that. <laughs> I was fascinated by all of it. Well, because, again, it is a reminder. Go ahead. You there? No, no, no go ahead. You, you started there. Okay. Time in with something go ahead
3: oh uh i i, I was i started laughing because i wanted to say you know why'd you say the same thing twice
2: you know, <laughs> do you want to use a chemical to
3: preserve the food or do you want to use a chemical to reserve to preserve the food <laughs> fair enough because that's what salt um the salt is it's a nice chemical formula and used to preserve the food
2: <laughs> touche sir touche um but I, but I I like that. I mean, maybe maybe my my thought about this is wrong, but I feel like there was a very natural uh, way of preserving the food that isn't terrible, versus our modern way of preserving food. You know, to make it last on store shelves, you know, ad infinitum, which can be terrible. I, I, at least that's what I've seen in every documentary I've watched. Um, oh yeah, uh, your- when they when they showed his root cellar, I'm
3: like, oh my god, I would. Kill for a root cellar. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's great, wasn't it? Uh, what'd you think of it? Oh episode? yeah, I thought it was great. It, it in a in a world where the the biggest thing used to be the gastro pubs, where food was deconstructed or presented in ways that, uh, you know, the the chef's coat was more of a lab coat when you're presented something uh, like Caesar salad and liquidized in different test tubes and you're, you have to eat them in a certain way to understand it. This guy goes all the way back to, to how, you know, the pilgrim used to have to do stuff to survive. Right. Something, something that was done out of necessity. He does not just to honor tradition, but also to, simplify his craft.
2: Yeah, I was re- I was really into it. I liked what the the one teacher was saying about him. You know, everyone reads cookbooks. Oh, yeah, uh but he but he would just create things and experiment and he didn't want to be, you know, uh pushed into a corner or boxed in by other people's ideas. He wanted to create something from his own imagination. And I tell you, I think that's the thing I enjoy most about watching a lot of these cooking shows is when, you know, you're, you're given the task of creating something out of the ether and people come up with some wickedly fun ideas. Um, so one of the things about top chef is, you know, you, at the beginning of the season, you know, you, they, you really separate the wheat from the chaff, in the, in the sense that you have these really, really talented people, you know, who, who excel at the top of the season and you know, the other ones are going to get cut because they're just like, I came up with ham and cheese. It's like, all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then the flip side of that is at the end of the season, people are just burnt the fuck out. <laughs> so you have these very creative people who are just like, yeah, I went with the ham and cheese too now because I can't. I just, God, eight weeks of this? Ugh. <laughs> you know? Um,. But there's always somebody out there who comes up with this wicked, you know, these, these crazy ideas. Um, so this, was, this episode was a lot of fun and it's definitely a restaurant that if I can ever get to Sweden, I would I would check out. What's the uh, give me the final word here, sir, um, on this episode and really in general on Chef's Table. As we say on the Rattling Broadcasting Network, take me home, baby. Take me home. Uh one of the, the quotes that I
3: definitely took away from this was when he talked about how he almost uh I can't remember if it was him or if it was Kay who uh basically was planning to give up on cooking the the, the notion that if all you do is make someone else's dish, what are you doing? And I right. think that's that's for me that's part of the reason why I got out because I I lost my inspiration uh cooking here in in kitchens in America you have a set menu, a set recipe, a set plating. You can't even be unique in that. Uh with Masmo, oops, I dropped the lemon tart. Something like that happened in a in a US kitchen these days? No, the the waiter would go out and apologize saying, "Oh, we we only have one lemon tart now." And <laughs> that was that was always my passion in cooking, not just creating the dish, but using the the plate as my canvas and creating this very artistic thing that you see it and instantly you're, you know, you want this.
2: Do you still cook at home? Are you into creating at home now that you have sort of an open canvas to play on? Or do you just kind oh God, of, yeah. you know, <laughs> okay. You, you, you've escaped Outside the plantation Italian, and now you're my free, My wife huh? doesn't come in. <laughs> Very good. It's You know, I, I said, whatever you, I always encourage people, because, you know, sort of take this uh, all the way back around again. Um, people find out in my profession or in my, my social life that I do podcasts. And first of all, I always love the reaction to that because it's like alchemy to them. It's like, you do podcast? How? <laughs> like I fucking dial a number and I just talk. That's it's not that hard. Um, but, you know, but to people who I guess are not used to it or are just not like tech savvy, they, uh, this, this is just magic. And I, you know, and I say mm-hmm. to them, like, look, podcast, podcasting is, is my creativity. This is my outlet. Uh, this is this is how I'm able to express myself so that I don't go crazy, and everyone should have that in their life. There should be a place for them to just let their hair down, and experiment and express themselves, and get that kind of energy out of their system. Uh, you know, so so that they can redirect the rest of their energy into other things in life. You know, whether it's family or your profession or what have you. Now, if you're lucky enough to be able to express yourself in your profession, well, hot damn, aren't you, you know, the bee's knees. But for a lot of us, we have jobs. And then what do you do with the rest of your time? Um, And I think, you know, for those people who are talented enough and lucky enough to be, uh, you know, artistic in the kitchen, I, I, you know, I envy folks like yourself and, you know, and and the people in Chef's Table because you you know you're really able to uh you're able to express your creativity in something that uh you know like who doesn't like to eat, you know what i mean? It, we all have to eat. You know, we we got to we got to live, we got to eat and you're able to take that sort of mundane activity and and make it wonderful. Um so I applaud you. Um in general Chef's Table, I thought was fun. I'm anxious to see. I'm um, uh, check out season two so later on in the year, and I know season three just dropped on Netflix not that long ago. They're all six episodes, and I think there's a Chef's Table France that's four episodes long. So, at some point in the future on the Rattler Broadcasting Network, we'll uh, we'll do more of these Chef's Table seasons. But. Um, for the time being, I think we have uh, drawn this conversation to a close, Mr. Roth. I want to thank you for being on here and talking about this with me. Did you have fun tonight? Was this enjoyable for you? Oh, this was a lot of fun
3: <laughs> talking <laughs> about. Uh, when whenever you're talking about your passion, it's easy to get kind of wrapped up in it, and uh, I, I enjoy the the opportunity to. To, to share my passion with others and hopefully impart on them the the spark to to go on their own journey whether it be with cooking or with podcasting or uh, whatever whatever outlet they feel they
2: can tap into so I'll have to tap you again when uh when we tackle these uh chef's chef table seasons in the future Oh, I'll be here. <laughs> All right. Uh, <clears throat> Real quick, uh, at the end of every one of my podcasts, we uh, I allow my guests and you know, I go for myself the opportunity to plug any projects you're involved with or ways to contact you. You know, some people, they're just like, I'm on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> <But> other, <laughs> other people have some other stuff going on, so... I'm going to go ahead and do, uh, just throw you the floor here. Uh, if there's anything you would like to plug, even if it's a service that you're passionate about or whatever it is you want people to know about, uh, this is your time to just quick do uh, some plugs here, let people know, and then I'll do my thing and then I think we'll be out. Well, I'm not doing anything personally.
3: Uh, I mentioned that I went to uh a culinary college called Johnson and Wales. You don't have to go to a big university to get the kind of experiences that I had. Uh, I started out very young. I fell into cooking and I just, I fell in love. I found my passion, but I knew I needed proper training. You can find cooking classes anywhere. Don't don't be afraid to try something new. Just because you think it might not taste good, you think you might look silly doing it, just get out and try it. Try something new. Uh, I'm on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've had that Twitter since Twitter started, and I, I called myself Chef M80.
2: Okay. All it, right. It, it was um, weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Once again, thank you for being on. I, uh, I This year has been an interesting one because when I, when I started opening up the, my blog talk radio account to, uh, for other people to do shows, it was a very kind of closed system of people that I would get involved with. It was basically the guys I knew from 401 mania um This year has just I sort of just kind of opened up the doors and were like, anyone wants to talk to me about anything at all fucking i 'm open you know the the uh the limitations are are off the table and it 's funny i I didn't think I would get people interested in wanting to, but you and a coworker of mine I mean, people have been knocking on my door fuck the the one time I said. Hey, I, anybody up for, you know, doing some TV parties? And I got bombarded. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, me. What about me, boss? So uh, I'm excited about this year and hearing, uh, giving uh, more people an opportunity to come on and talk, you know, and give give voice to people who would not have normally uh, gone on a podcast. You know, they just wouldn't have thought about it. So I'm glad I'm able to give people that opportunity in my little – my little corner of the internet. And speaking of my little corner of the internet, uh, in the archives on the and Broadcasting Network, on source material hosted by the late, the uh, the great Jesse Starcher, we discussed Batman '66 Volume One, uh, wherein I also did a mini review of the Lego Batman movie. Uh, of course, tonight was TV party uh, chef's table. Uh, tomorrow night on the Metal Hammer of Doom. We've got uh, my friend Frank Morosky from high school. We were in a band together. He, of course, is in an actual band now, one that's, you know, had success. (laughs) It's called If He Dies, and their album Beneath the Waves. We're going to go ahead and review that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Nine o'clock, assuming Mr. Cooper actually gets out of work on time. If He Dies, Beneath the Waves, Metal Hammer of Doom. And then on trial this week. Myself and Sean Comer, we will be putting Catwoman with Halle Berry on trial. I will be defending. Sean will be prosecuting. And I will show the world that there is something defensible about Halle Berry's Catwoman, besides the fact that she has a very nice chest. So that's what we got going on this week on the old network. Uh, Next week, we've got uh, the TV party tonight, a week from tonight. Pat Mullen will be back on. We'll be doing some Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll from good old Dennis Leary. Uh, further celebrating Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, The Metal Hammer of Doom will be reviewing Steel Panther's Lower the Bar. And uh, on and on Thursday, because Winfrey Made Me, we're going to review the movie Inc. I know nothing about this movie, but... Uh, a lot, of, a lot of people lined up when I threw that idea out there to make me watch some shit I would never watch. So <laughs> we're going to watch Ink and review it, and then uh, we have a big show on Friday. Uh, it's the announcement of Wolverine Week and our character discussion in celebra- in celebration of the movie Logan. Uh, which will be coming out that day. And we'll be discussing all things Wolverine the following week. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. Uh, Again, I want to thank Mark Roth for coming on. And we will see you next week. Be well, be safe, and behave.